Hey, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible and that together we can make it happen. I'm Manda Scott, and I spent the first series of this podcast laying out the basic toolkit that we believe is essential to making conscious evolution a possibility, which is the entire premise behind the Accidental Gods project, this podcast, the website, and the membership portal that lies behind it. We spent the second series finding people who are using these tools in ways that could inspire us to change. And now that we're in the third season, we're beginning to lay out a vision for the more beautiful world that our hearts know is possible, and the embodied ways that you and I and the people around us can get there. With this in mind, my guest this week is a systems thinker, a change maker, and one of the most radical of the new imagineers that I have encountered to date. I met Phoebe Tickell at Schumacher College when she was helping to design the new holistic science course there, and I was really impressed by her energy, her vision, and her commitment to a different world. She's a force of nature with the capacity to create change in a heartfelt way. And when people talk about the younger generation being the core of our world shift, Phoebe is a model of how this can be. In her time, she's been part of setting up future farm labs, Enspiral, Going Horizontal, and Moral Imaginations, most of which we will talk about in what is, I hope, the first of several conversations. So people of the podcast, please welcome Phoebe Tickell. Phoebe Tickell, welcome to Accidental Gods podcast from your chateau in France, which sounds absolutely <laughs> glorious. Although, listeners, we have made Phoebe hide under a duvet for the sound quality. So, so if she starts gasping halfway through and we have to open up for air holes and the sound quality deteriorates, life is more important than sound quality. So Phoebe, welcome. How are you doing? Thank you so much. I, I'm really excited for this, um, and it's got a kind of yeah, it's it, it's got a kind of childhood feel to it as I'm I'm hiding in this duvet fort. Yeah, hiding under the covers, reading books. <laughs> so we met at Schumacher, mm. and I was even then impressed by what I saw you doing. And since then, watching you on social media, watching the breadth and the depth of what you are doing, I am deeply in awe of your energy and your vision. So just as a starting point, can you give us a very brief potted history of how you got to where you are now? I can try. Um, yeah, every time I every time I do a history um, kind of backtrack, it's always different. So it's always uh, interesting for me as well. That's just something to pull out that uh, I'm working a lot with story and narrative at the moment. And you know, that saying around um, a, a person can never stand in the same river twice because they're not the same person and the river's not the same river. I feel that yeah. way about stories and narratives too. So, you know, I'm a different person and the story itself, um, you know, the, and, and the river I'm standing in is different and the story changes. But um, I will still, I will still talk a bit about uh, my journey of getting here. So I thought I would just mention I'm half Hungarian and half English. Mm. Um, and I think that's, that's contributed to 
who I am in quite a big way. So I've got a Hungarian mother and an uh, English father. So I actually started life speaking Hungarian and then English at uh, nursery and and then spoke both. And I would speak Hungarian to my mother and English to my father, which is, yeah, an interesting way of learning a language. And it's such a differently constructed language. It must be interesting having the mental flexibility to move between both. (laughs) Yeah. So Hungary and then to Cambridge. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good next chapter. So um, spent a lot of my growing up time kind of bouncing between uh, fine art and natural sciences. So yeah, I could either be found in the art department or um, I loved to spend time in nature, but really was completely enthralled by chemistry and biology um, and, and just like these natural sciences and learning about how the world worked and on a, on a molecular level to an ecological level. Uh, I wouldn't have put it in this language at the time, but now I would say I was completely obsessed with patterns and systems. Mm-hmm. And that's just, that's become more and more clear um, as I've grown up. Right. Yeah, that led me to Cambridge, which was a really bizarre environment. Um, I had quite, a, quite a, an interesting experience, um, almost slightly anthropological, because I found it so foreign um, in its in its environment and style. Um, and I'd had such different expectations mm. of of what Cambridge would be like. Right. Uh, so tell us, just tell me a little bit more about the distinction between your what you were expecting and what you found, because I think that probably led into what you did later. I was expecting the focus to really be on learning and growing as a human being, like growing in all of these different directions. And Mm. I kind of, I guess I was expecting interdisciplinary learning and a big focus on kind of a supportive caring learning environment lots of opportunities for kind of discussion and debate and yeah just just learning and instead you found i found a speed of like of just moving through vast volumes of material which just meant that it it was it was basically it felt impossible to keep up in terms of wanting to discuss and go deeper and truly kind of understand and sit with this really like universal knowledge, you know, like within the same day we were learning about how, you know, the patterning of flies um, in their development as they, as they grow from eggs to larvae. And then, you know, the next uh, lecture we'd be learning about plant hormones and how uh, plant hormones, you know, were, were used in different gradients to signal, like to communicate and signal and be in symbiosis with the insect world. And then because I studied plant science, cell biology and neuroscience. And so, and then, you know, finished the day learning about kind of pain receptors and you know, like all sorts of things, the motor cortex, how the brain uh, is structured in a way that reflects the physical environment. And it was just, it was so fascinating, but it felt like there was no time to fully integrate mm. that knowledge and write about it. And and we were expected always to create outputs which were very analytical and rational and dry. Yeah. Um, and I, I always imagined, you know, what would it be like to 
have a science degree where the output was also poetry and you know dance and discussion and you know salons and sense making mm. and all the stuff that I am so pleased I get to do now. Yeah, much more Schumacher than Cambridge. Yeah, it definitely led me to be fascinated by uh, learning environments and how we can create really uh, rigorous but also like thriving environments for learning. Um, and that that led me to, to focus on uh, what people call alternative education for the years after Cambridge um, and eventually led me to Schumacher, where, where the two of us met. Yes. And it's led me, you know, to, to so many other things, because for me, um, learning is life, or as, or as my friend Nora Bateson says, somatosy, mutual learning is life. So, yeah, I think that's a, a really core concept that just runs throughout, uh, whether it's working with organizations or the food system or education, um, creating opportunity to learn. You, you do seem to have moved very broadly because mm-hmm. you set up Future Farm Lab. You, as straight after college, you set up Two Two Five Academy, yeah. which is, as far as I can tell, about about learning and and learning how to learn. Um, what? Where did the breadth come from and the drive to make things happen? Do you think? I think it's how I learn. Um, it's how I learn. It's how I create um it reminds me actually of my art a levels and and kind of all of the the parts of my schooling that was art focused you had these assignments and these these projects which would last you know three months or six months and you would just completely immerse in a topic or or some sort of provocation and you would explore it from well I would explore it from Mm. every single angle so there was one um, one art assignment, which was around like urban environment. And I spent hours just like wandering through the streets of London with a sketchbook. I would like, I would collect litter. I would take photographs of like strange buildings and reflections and be playing with like the reflections of the urban environment in the water and in the glass and, you know, and then trying to write poetry, trying to uh, speak to people, you know, so it was this kind of multimedia exploration of of different topics. And, and it's also what leads me to believe that everybody should study art at school, everybody. It should be completely compulsory um, kind of art school um, for life, yeah. which actually our, our mutual friend, Amber Gro- Grother from um, Holland, I know her project is, she, she runs an art school for, for adults. Mm, um, yes. Yeah, she's, she's great. Oh, we might talk to her on the podcast at some point. That would be exciting. Because it seems to me that as part of moving towards whatever future we are going to grow, mm. then changing the way that we learn has to be central to what we're doing. So let's move forward because I'm aware that time is moving on. I haven't given you as much time as I wanted to explore how we got to where we are, but let's look at where we are, in where you are. In terms of the things that are most alive for you just now and your vision of transformation and how we might bring it about. So there's a lot in there. So you can pick whichever bit feels most alive to start with. Um, I was just reflecting before this this conversation began um, how when I left Cambridge, I was asking all these 
very big questions. And I I went and worked at Imperial College London as a, a researcher in a lab, so stood as a scientist, and I had this project um, in education on the side and uh, also did was doing youth mentorship. So there was a lot of – I was doing a lot. But the thing that was really – the thing I was noticing about myself, which both I was really happy about, but then also quite worried, was like I'm ask I'm constantly asking these big questions and these grand narratives. Like uh, I think my blog at the time was called "What Humanity Wants," and it was about it was mm. a play on Kevin Kelly's book "What Technology Wants." Um, and I was just really interested in this kind of humanity level yes. narrative of like what does it mean to be human. Yes. What is it about this age that is different? What is it about technology which is different? And what do we want? What does humanity want? Where are we going? Um, and how can we actually become a self-authoring species that takes back that hmm. authorship of like, we are, you know, this accidental yes. godlike species. It's, a, it's an amazing name for a podcast. And like, what do we want with that? And what is the responsibility and the kind of moral responsibility we take and that that will lead me to answering your question um because yeah then I was just reflecting like how wonderful it feels to be um you know nearing the end of my 20s and living um life in a way that means that I am more and more surrounded by people and organizations and a society that wants to ask those big questions and I don't know if that's because I'm more and more in a filter bubble, which is probably partly true. But I also yeah. think that the situation is dire enough and serious enough that these questions are becoming important to everyone instead of just an elite. Yeah. It would have been quite hard to find a filter bubble 10 years ago, I think, that was as driven as it is possible to find now. Mm. I think I think filter bubbles exist and there are clearly people in other filter bubbles, mm -hmm. but I think it I think there are far more people much more driven to ask these questions now than has ever been the case. Yeah, exactly. And I, have, I feel quite strongly about democratizing, um, asking big questions and democratizing imagination and, yeah, this kind of grand, um, these grand narratives and, and myths. And I, I really, that was part of uh, the point of 225 mm -hmm. Academy was also working with children age 11 to 18 and giving them the opportunity to write the story of their own life in the context of understanding um, the world and being in awe of the world and also aware of the risks and perils. So it was really this kind of um, hero's journey uh, kind of metaphor, but everybody, everybody should be their own you know, life's mm. hero in, in a sense, I also have a lot of problems with the hero narrative. Oh, good. I was about to ask. Yes. Even if, it, even mm -hmm. if we call hero as a gender neutral, it seems to me that we need a new mm -hmm. Absolutely. way of framing this because the hero's journey has got us to here. And here is, is you know an interesting place, but it could run us into a brick wall quite hard. So maybe maybe for people who don't know, could you describe the hero's journey and then describe the issues that you find with it? And then if you found an answer, I would be so interested. <laughs> Goodness. I mean, I think you'd probably be better at describing the hero's journey because I know you're, um, you're also deeply in the world of myths and 
storytelling, but I'm in a very, very basic um, summary, I'd say it's about, you know, it's Joseph Campbell's, uh, Joseph Campbell, you know, created this, um, it's almost like a story archetype of the hero's journey, this common story or myth that runs, seemingly runs throughout many of the stories um, that people, humans tell, especially, you know, if you look into like the film industry into Hollywood, there's often this kind of hero's journey of like, there's a normal person, everyday person, mm. you know, suddenly goes through a, a crisis or a challenge and often almost dies um, and then comes out the other side, you know, goes through this dark night of the soul, initiation experience, comes out the other side, you know, realizes um, mm. something, some things, whether whether it's that they're, they're powerful or love, you know, saves the day and, and these kind of large... Um, kind of humanity level, uh, yeah, realizations, and then, you know, comes out a different person. I don't know if you would, would you add to that? There's often a mentor figure, I would say, that's, that's, but not always. I think, I think the key is that kind of invitation to cross the line to another form of reality. I think shaking up the existing stability there tends mm-hmm. often to be a resistance to begin with and then and then an impulsion that is impossible to ignore. And then exactly as you said, that kind of cycling down into the underworld, the discovery of a gift, something that will be transformative and bringing mm-hmm. that back to the newly changed world that can never go back to what it was, seems to me the core parts of it. Um, and... When we teach changing the narrative at Schumacher, we always come back to here is the hero's journey. There are very, very few human narratives that cannot be mapped onto. If you take that down to its bare bones, challenge and the individual or sometimes the collective overcoming the challenge by discovering their either mostly inner, sometimes outer gift of some sort and then bringing that back to the collective. And it's a wonderful, wonderful story of human development, but I am increasingly thinking that we need something more than this to bring us to whatever it is that we as accidental mm. gods can become. So, And I know that you've really looked into this, and I'm wondering if you've either identified where the holes are that we need to plug or found ways of of taking the hero's journey through its own hero's journey and finding something new. Yeah, um, I would I would answer that probably with multiple parts to the to how I've thought about this. I think one part is that I know I have heard. I think a lot of people are waking up to the fact that the narrative of a hero can be toxic, um, and you've seen that in the response to COVID and this story of the NHS workers being mm. heroes almost kind of sacrificing themselves for the larger population and you know how unfair this is and how you know these are not these are not heroes mm-hmm. these are people who um, may not even feel like they have a choice um, you know this might be their only source of livelihood and it's this this kind of it felt twisted to glorify um, something that is far more complex um, and and yeah. multi, faceted as as this very basic kind of heroes uh yeah. hero story so i think one piece is just like it is simplistic 
and and it can be weaponized just like all stories and narratives can be weaponized so can the story of the hero i think an, another piece though is before we just throw away um you know this really deep mythic narrative that you know the kind of the call to growth the call to answering a question to investigation to you know to ex- exploration and adventure the the undertaking of a journey the underworld the dark night of the soul and then the the integration this kind of initiation and coming out uh, transformed with gifts to take back i think there's a there is still a lot of beauty in that and i think um i think it's not something to to throw away i think potentially it could be one stage of a far more complex and and long-term journey because obviously after you go through that initiation what do you do what do you do then what do you do with that newfound power or responsibility or place in the world um and and i would say Mm -hmm. i i would venture to say most people haven't um on the most people on the planet haven't had the opportunity to go through their own hero's journey i mean if you're if you're someone who you know, has grown up and immediately had to enter the world of work, or maybe mm. you managed to go, go and get a degree and then enter the workforce, and it's just one day after another, and you're allowed to have you know a week or two weeks of holiday, and usually in that time you're so exhausted because of the the level of work and intensity of the modern age, and the fact that you're always plugged in to some sort of distraction, some sort of you know, limbic, um, hijack, you know, we could talk so much about the impact of technology on our perception and, um, yes. states of being. Yes. I really avoid the word consciousness when I can. I think I said it earlier, but I, I've, I'm really trying to be strict with the word consciousness because I think it is, it is, um, it means so many different things to different people and it, it can mm. feel unrigorous. It's like, what are we talking about when we talk about consciousness? So just a little, <laughs> just a little side note okay interesting oh but we could explore that one another time i would love to because because accidental gods is driving towards conscious evolution but then we would have to define what consciousness is i think that would it would be a podcast that would interest me it, it might only interest you and me but anyway another time so yes impact of technology on ways of being however is huge and dopamine pathways versus serotonin pathways are huge Exactly. There's uh, there's so many things that are dragging us out of presence and a state of, as I said, self self authorship. And I think the hero's journey speaks to um, people who, you know, may have time to to go into their own story of why they're here, what their purpose is, and it can seem really selfish. You know, it, it could be really easy to um, dismiss that as a selfish thing to do. But I also feel as if if everybody was truly connecting to to why they think they're here and what is it that would make a good life for them. What is their definition of a good life? Um, what yeah, what are they here yeah. to do? Then I think we'd live in a, a very different world. So I don't know if it's selfish. I think it's quite um, earth centric to to really connect to why why you're here. Yes, I had never considered it as selfish. Have you had, it sounds as if you're responding to conversations where that has been the case. Yeah, I've I've heard 
people uh, speak about the hero's journey as as kind of very individualistic and self you know self centered and selfish, and I think that's what I'm doing is kind of pushing back um, against that slightly. But then what I would go on to say is that I believe that there is space for a kind of interdependency, interdependent version of a hero's journey. Like, can we all be um, growing together and actually building relationship? So there's not much focus in the hero's journey on relationships and building mm-hmm. ecology and the interdependency of life and um, what we do with that. Unless that's what we find as we go down into the underworld is the necessity for that. You could turn the hero's journey into a libertarian mythology of of individuation and solitude, but I would be quite surprised if we took the greater mass of humanity and actually gave them the space and the time and the connectedness to the more than human world that is required to really find our place on the planet and then mm. discovered that everybody wanted to head off totally in solitude and do their own thing. So that it kind of depends where your framing comes from, I would think. Does that yeah. sound plausible to you? I, I often talk about the dark dark material that we are swimming in. I Yeah, I really see it in my mind's eye as this invisible um, kind of liquid that we swim in that is created by our shared myths, narratives, values, uh, economy, uh, governance, you know, these, these intangible mm. architectures. And, and that's, that, that is what I would say my focus is on at the moment is how do yeah. we put language onto this invisible matrix that influences um, our desires, what we grow up thinking our role is, um, on this planet, what we decide uh, would make a good life. So let's really, this sounds, this is exactly where I wanted to go is, so I would phrase that mm. as changing the narrative, but that's the narrative is this matrix that you described that influences everything to the point where it's easier to imagine the extinction of yeah. pretty much every living species on the planet than it is to imagine changing that matrix because we are so embedded in it that we can't see beyond it. Exactly. So how can we begin to shift that? That seems to be the focus of what you're working on with moral imaginations and with your radical collaborations. Can you talk about that then? Yes, yeah, absolutely. So I, I um, would say that that for the last five, six years I've been working on and we you know, started with how to create learning environments and now it's really getting a sense of these different factors, this this matrix that creates this patterning field, just like when you have flies, like what what I um, remember learning about in my lectures, the the way that flies develop mm. um, and the way that all embryos and plants develop is through this patterning um, that is created by different gradients and patterns, and then the actual physical matter of their bodies uh, develops within these fields and that is what happens to us and to our to our minds um, and mm. I would say that the ways that I'm working on that now it's really around how to shift perception um, and I work on this closely with with others who are brilliant and um, 
I, I feel very, very lucky to to work alongside. Okay, so currently my focus is around um, firstly narratives. So there's a project that I've been um, running for the last two and a half months, supported by um, an organization called Unbound Philanthropy, who hmm. works on um, policy making and narrative change for migrants and immigrants um, and, and refugees. And so I've been working with them on convening oh. groups of people across civil society, you know, f- people all the way from like strategic communications experts, media experts, funders, storytellers, um, people who work on narrative from very different parts of society and who bring very different perspectives. And it's really interesting because some of those people, you know, work in, say, advertising and have these very, very good skills of narrative, but have been applying them to, you know, selling things. Hmm. And then you've got people, you know, activists or politicians who are using narrative in a very different way. And it's, it's been very, very fascinating to start teasing out, you know, what are the tools of narrative? How do we construct meta narratives that could change this this kind of matrix or this fluid that we're swimming in towards a more just, healthy, equitable future. Yes. How can we do this, Phoebe? Because this is exactly, I wish I'd known you were doing this because this is exactly what I'm trying to do with the work that I'm doing at the moment. So how can we do this? How can we change the meta-narratives? Well, from what I see of your work, you're absolutely doing that and, and changing that. I think, you know, writing and creating new stories and and also organizing kind of experiential narrative shifts for people. You know, we met in Schumacher, the number of people that I see go through Schumacher and completely shift their narrative Mm -hmm. of of how the world works, who they are, and what they're here to do. Like, I really feel like places like Schumacher are so important as kind of melting pots um, for narrative and narrative change. So for people listening there will be some who don't even know what Schumacher is. So Schumacher College is in Devon and it functions at its best as an intentional community of learning. It is based on the style of an ashram. So we get up in the morning and we meditate Mm. and then we have breakfast together and then we have time working together. The head, hands and heart metaphor of life where everything is brought together in service to the community and in service to learning is huge. And being amongst a community where, however disparate we are, the intention is for the thriving of the community and for the betterment of the community. And having the facilitation of people who are skilled in helping us to resolve the knots that arise, because knots inevitably arise, was it was for me a transformative experience. And you're right, I, I don't imagine, I certainly haven't seen anybody go through even a relatively short-term, week-long Schumacher experience and not mm. come out the other side with a radically different concept of how the world can be. How can we raise that at scale, do you think? Because, you know, Schumacher has a limited throughput. Have you had ideas of how to create that experience on a wider scale? I I have. I have to be careful, though, with um, the number of things that I I let myself think about. I, I do a lot of working out loud, um, and you know, for people who are on social media, I'm I I have a lot of um, 
I use social media actually in a very different way. I've been told to uh, the normal way of using it. I really use it as like an open forum of publishing kind of any thoughts and ideas and getting feedback. And it's, yeah, I'm very active. I'm being very careful with myself about um, what I what I focus on because right now I'm so clear on um, the parts of this puzzle that I'm I'm here to to work on. Okay, so let's talk about the parts that you are clear with. The parts that I'm working on that I feel really excited about are really around this, yeah, the shifting of perception. Um, and so that leads me to talk about this project, Moral Imaginations, which is really um, something I'm very, very excited about yes. and have been working on for the last kind of nine months. But I'd say it's a, a culmination of something that I've been working on for far longer than that. Um, and what it's about is really developing tools, practices, and a community that to strengthen the muscle of moral imagination. Um, I really believe that the moral imagination is, is a muscle and an approach and a worldview that um, basically needs to have a massive resurgence in the next uh, 10 years. So can you say what a moral imagination is for you? Give us a definition first. Yes. So the moral imagination is the combination of um, moral responsibility and developing a sense of moral responsibility and for life on earth, to stand for life on earth and to take our place um, as activists in whatever form that that is. Mm-hmm. Um, I use the, the word activist, but I know there's a lot of baggage around that term. I really believe that all of us, you know, whether we work as permaculture gardeners or bankers or uh, politicians or teachers can become these kind of activist stewards, um, a- active um, agents and citizens of, of life, life being you know, both nature but also society and this fabric of, of life that we're all part, part of. Yeah. So there's this moral responsibility part and I also just, I feel really excited about that because um, I feel as if morals and doing the right thing have become really kind of flat and boring and sometimes it's associated with guilt of like not recycling enough or like, you know, on the other side, this kind of virtue signaling of like being a good person and kind of almost mm. like competing to be a better person than everyone else. Um, and I think we need a, a kind of perception revolution around morals, being moral and doing the right thing. And the imagination part is what I love to combine with that growing muscle of how to be uh, moral in the 21st century in this moment, what is the right thing to do, while at the same time, creatively and unboundedly imagining a more beautiful world, a, a world of you know possibility and innovation and hmm. Yeah, like that. this kind of abundant imagination combined with this heartfelt um, responsibility of standing on behalf of all life. And something about bringing those together just feels really, really um, exciting and, and compelling. Brilliant. Because it's a way of creating the patterning fields that you spoke of earlier that would allow our reality to then build itself upon a different structure. 
Yeah, exactly. And it's also about bringing, I think, bringing back an element of sincerity um, that has, I, sometimes I feel has been missing from uh, the progressive left and the other discourse around kind of changing the world, like kind of systems change is like this kind of just really almost childlike sincerity and love for the world while not making that kind of mm. performative or over the top. I, I'm very inspired by one of my teachers, Joanna Macy, who is a really central part to this project. And and she's actually who introduced me to the term um, moral imagination. A moral imagination, it's a, it's a term that's been used throughout the ages, actually, since Aristotle. Um, then there was someone in 1790, um, an, an academic who, who wrote about very briefly, just like uh, the moral imagination. It's been like quite briefly, uh, resur- it, it kind of resurfaces uh, throughout history in different ways. But the thing that um, we are doing differently in the Moral Imaginations Project is that we are bringing a practice approach to that. So how can we actually develop practices of moral imaginations to do um, together, to bring into decision-making, to bring into yeah. organizations, to um, practice amongst uh, community and activists, um, to strengthen that muscle. And is that working? Are you finding that you are able to develop tools that are that kind of road test in the outside world? Yes. Yeah. And I'm really, I'm excited about about what I'm seeing. So when COVID hit, I published a moral imagination story. So we, we published a story called The Impossible Train Story um, as an exercise in moral imagination. So this was a story about a train and about people who live on a train. And they've lived on a train um, since they can remember. They don't remember a time when they weren't on this train. And on the train, there are difficult living conditions. There's inequality. There, There's a ruling class. There are people who um, sleep in the aisles of the train and don't have you know, places to sleep. And suddenly there's a fire in one of the carriages and the train stops. And the brakes that nobody knew existed start to work and suddenly this train stops and everybody is completely confused and frightened um, Mm. and people start getting off the train and experience this world that is outside of the train and it's 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 beautiful and they hear birdsong and suddenly all of the people on the train who don't have anywhere to sleep are ordered to be housed and to be given beds and basically the end of the story is actually a, an invitation to finish the story because what happens is the people look ahead of the train and they see a cliff edge um, and they see that actually the train was moving towards a cliff edge all along and that this fire has mm. actually given them an opportunity to change the direction of the train. And some people start ripping up the train tracks and others are fighting them because they've got investments in the train and and then there's an invitation to follow to finish that story, mm. and the response to that was so strong. Um, I, I've been I was really surprised by um, the strength of the response. And at the end of that uh, story, there was an invitation to join a weekly session for six weeks uh, during the lockdown and practice these moral imaginations exercises and build keep developing this community 
And we had about 250 people join those sessions wow. yeah, in different throughout that time. And it was just so obvious that, and, and, and the feedback was so strong that people just want to be able to imagine together, imagine different outcomes, imagine different ways of living life and different possibilities. And what if things were different? And what if we did rip up the tracks of the train? And what if we planted you know, permaculture gardens? And, and But what mm. if we got back on the train? What would we do? Where would it go? And so it was like this, this what we called it was serious play because it's, it, again, it kind of captures in moral imaginations. There's this seriousness of the moral because it's kind of, you know, as serious as if the world was coming to an end, but it's also imagination and play because actually where else is um, the new world going to be born from? It's going to come from that place of imagination and play and possibility and um, I think world building yeah. happens at the boundaries between where this world exists and where the imaginary world comes into existence. There's that, that place, that boundary place. Yes, yes, at the edges. And have you, so we, you know, broadly in the UK, we are kind of doddering our way out of lockdown into something less well-defined. Um, and it does seem distressingly as if the conventional narrative of the way the world is has reasserted itself in spite of a lot of polls that I've seen of, you know, 10% of people want the world to go back to what it was, which suggests to me that the other 90% don't. But the 10% are the ones who hold the reins of power. Are you seeing with the moral imaginations any infiltration into what we might mm. broadly call the ruling class, and and we could have an entire podcast discussing that, but let's not go down that definitional rabbit hole. Are you seeing cracks in the dam at all? Because my, my hope is that we end up with something a little bit like the Berlin Wall coming down, that it looks like it's going to stay forever, and it looks as if the ruling structure is holding it in place, but actually mm. under the surface is this extraordinary mycelial network of growth and hope and innovation mm. and and the the tiny crack starts and very soon the whole thing disintegrates um and i would like this to be the case but i have no evidence that it actually is and you're at the mm. cutting edge of this are you seeing moves within the ruling structure of people wanting to be different i would say we are in a total systems melt and that melt will happen non-linearly that there will be pockets of breakdown and change and, uh, yeah, just like unraveling. You know, Joanna Macy calls, talks about the great unraveling. Yeah, and also power is nonlinear. You know, you have the people who run organizations, and you could think about this in a really neat kind of hierarchical linear diagram of like, okay, we need to uh, target that top ruling class and like, you know, then everything will change. But actually power is so, so nonlinear and complex. And often the people at the top of the, you know, who are running large organizations or, or funding bodies or research centers, you know, are being influenced by all sorts of other people and factors. And there's, you know, it's, it's a really complex landscape. And I do feel like, especially since COVID, there is mm. a shifting in terms of what is allowed to be talked about. And Black Lives Matter and the events of the last kind of 
few weeks or, or months have really like directly um, contributed to that. I don't, I, I don't ascribe to optimism or pessimism anymore. Like I find that it's yeah. completely unhelpful because everything like time is also fundamentally nonlinear, like, and <laughs> it feels like the universe is nonlinear. So somehow, yeah, yeah optimism or, or pessimism or a sense of kind of causality of like, this will lead to this and then we'll lead there and then we'll be here doesn't feel like the right thing to do, to think about. Yes. And, and the patterning, the patterning fields. I, I listened to a podcast with Douglas Hoffman with Future Thinkers yesterday, who in very precise mathematical terms, described the fact that space-time basically doesn't really exist, that everything is patterned around consciousness. And on a spiritual level, that's so obvious. And yet hearing it laid out in terms that meshed with our more materialist narrative kind of exploded things in a way that allowed me to see that the more we can work within the patterning fields, the more that we can create a fluidity and a flexibility of our consciousness beyond where it is at the moment, the more reality be is able to orient around it. So when I was at school, we did experiments quite young where we would put two magnets down and then scatter iron filings and you could see the lines of force and it felt like a kind of magic. And this is what I'm feeling at this moment is this concept of patterning fields and the real radical felt sense that we live in a world of consciousness and that we we know at an intellectual level. Anybody who read the Tao of Physics back in the 80s before Phoebe was born knows that we create our own reality, but that has settled in for me in a way that it hadn't before. And I think because my own muscles of consciousness have been stretched recently in ways that they hadn't before, that the concept that if we change the nature of the magnets, we change the nature of the fields between them, we change the way that the iron filings align across those fields, and then we change the nature of reality. Does that sit with you? Did you do that as a child? Yes, I I remember. Um, it does sit with me, and it and I do remember doing that as a child. And um, this is kind of, I guess, this is what this overarching um, theme of of the work I'm talking about of this dark material, um, these this fluid, this these fields of um, there's a word manomaya, which means like man made. Um, kind of reality and then our will and actions and desires and uh, patterning of how we play out our lives and how we build buildings and you know all of that happens within these fields and it and I like this the metaphor of, of the magnets and the magnetic um, the little uh, iron filings mm. and for me you know the biological metaphor I use is the one of the the fly and the the patterning just because it's so clearly etched into my memory. Um, and I, I also did mm. a, there was a art project I did, which was around um, creating an enormous two by two meter uh, biro drawing of a fly and then etching it into perspex. And so there's, there's something about flies, which <laughs> seems to be, um, mm. yeah, etched into my psyche. Yeah. So, so this patterning, um, I think, 
there are others who, and you mentioned uh, the Tower of Physics and Fritjof Capra, and I've, I worked with Fritjof as his course development manager for his uh, Systems View of Life course, which I really recommend um, the Capra course to people who are interested in systems thinking. It is online. I think it's capracourse.net. But I would at this point really mention, you know, a father of uh, much of this work, Gregory Bateson, and his work on cybernetics and Gregory was somebody, you know, who I'm learning so much about through his daughter, Nora um, Bateson. And, but it's funny, he feels like such a mentor uh, to me beyond the grave. And there, I've had some experiences right. recently where um, I've, I've really felt his presence and, and kind of almost heard him speaking. Um, and, and it's, you know, there are these people, these shamans, um, I would say, of the Western world. I don't think there's there's many. Can you say a little? Because quite a lot of our listeners probably haven't heard of Gregory Bateson. So in a, a few sentences, can you say what it is of his work that inspires you? Absolutely. So Gregory basically lived in um, a systems view of life. You know, when we talk about systems thinking and perceiving complexity, um, Gregory was living in a state of perception where that is how he viewed the world, um, these interdependencies. And this is all, you know, I'm learning this through Nora. So obviously I can't speak about Gregory um, mm. in the same way, but his his work, he started off as an anthropologist and he moved into, he moved between, you know, linguistics and uh, studying dolphins and animal behavior. He was also a psychotherapist. He worked with families and he brought this systems thinking lens, especially to um, the field of psychology in that, you know, really good metaphor for understanding what Nora has coined warm data, which is the the matter, the kind of data that comes out of complex systems. So I'm just going to take a, a tiny aside and explain explain warm data. So cold data is the data that we extract from the world um, to analyze and to rationally kind of extract it from its context. So it's when we take animals or living things we put them into the lab mm. we keep all the conditions the same and we extract this cold data which is usually in numerical form yeah and we think it's objective and we think it's standard exactly and we're obsessed with you know trying to take the observer out of the equation whereas actually you know science can't be done without human beings and and the subjective experience of being a human being and and you know consciousness this word like or this awareness, human awareness is intricately part of science, but we try and pretend mm. that it's completely objective. And this is what the holistic science course at Schumacher is um, partly focuses on. Um, and so, and yeah, I was, I was part of um, the team of, of the holistic science faculty for, for about a year. Um, and that's, that's a whole story, but that's the connection to Schumacher. But Nora, um, has coined this term warm data, which is the data that you keep, which stays embedded in its different contexts. And that's, you know, it's quite an abstract thing, but it's very, very um, helpful uh, in, in just kind of describing complex systems and this warm data. Um, and so when we talk about warm data, a really good example is family. If you tried to scientifically describe a family, you could try and list the people in the family. You could do a DNA like genotype uh, profile of all the microbiomes of the people in the family. We could write down how tall people are. 
we could write down how they did at school. You know, maybe mm. we could do so that would all be cold data. Right. There's all these cold data ways of trying to understand what a family is, but actually you could do infinite cold data mapping of a family and still not understand the warm data that makes a family a family. Hmm. You know, what, what did this person have for breakfast? What's the power dynamic between this person and that person? What mood is this, this person in and what is triggered by that memory of that other family member and that conversation and that that disappointment and that trust and you know like there's so much richness of warm data in a family so that just gives a little bit of space to talking about um the Batesons who have just had a huge influence on me and has a kind of part in my ancestral story as well in kind of spooky ways so what is it other than the concept of warm and cold data specifically with a view to this idea of the the dark matter, whatever it is that we're calling it, the the field that we're wanting to influence. How are the Batesons influencing your view of that? Well, I would just say that they, like Nora and Gregory, gave me um, more of a, a language and a and a perception of um, the the importance of everything that we cannot put language to and we cannot see. Because, because we grow up in reductionist schooling, we grow up um, developing these filters onto the world where we see cold data. Um, and through, I've kind of gained this uh, language and this framing for understanding uh, better what I was trying to, you know, I was using my own language like fields or dark matter or dark materials. Mm-hmm. Like, and this is basically perceiving complexity like perceiving the complexity, perceiving life for really what it is. And that is one part, I think, of the great transformation that needs to happen um, of our society to to move towards a life-sustaining society is to develop perception where we actually perceive the world as it is and from there develop new economics, develop new uh, value systems and and like to give a really tangible example, I put this on Facebook the other day, um, thinking about, you know, when we try and put value on a tree um, and previously we would have um, maybe put the, the price of the wood that the tree is made out of or like the number of, you know, books that can be made out of the tree or whatever it is, like that is not truly perceiving the value of that tree, the number of organisms that depend on that tree that mm. is an ecosystem the oxygen that that tree <laughs> generates for us to to stay alive like that that is true perception and being basically training ourselves to better perceive um the world and complexity and nature as it is will better allow us to live in harmony um, and work with nature and one really really kind of fundamental pattern of nature and and biology is relationship and is interdependency okay. And that's right. where the radical, the what I'm calling radical collaboration, comes into into play, um, which is that I'm I'm currently working um, at the National Lottery Community Fund. Actually, uh, part of my time is like my, a large amount of my time is spent there, and I, I work a lot in this UK civil society sector. Um, and there's a sense of the need for cross-sector collaboration on a scale that we've just never seen before right. and and kind of larger than that you know I think anybody who 
is working on behalf of life and trying to change the system and working for society, we need to be working together in a way that is so radical that it's far looks far more like a forest than it does look like society. Because in a way, it doesn't matter if you or me or anyone else kind of wins if the planet dies. Correct. And that, that's the shift. <laughs> that is the shift that has to happen. And are more people understanding this? I think they are. In your radical collaboration. I, I think they are. And are we finding ways to facilitate their connections in, in a warm data way that allows them to find ways to move beyond? Because we have lived in a sense of win-lose mm-hmm. forever. It's it's what Schmachtenberger and the others call plan A is the win-lose and that we need to move to game B, which is the win-win. Everybody wins, including the planet. Yes, Exactly. Is that becoming a more widespread concept within the civil sector that you inhabit? I think it's right at the beginning. Um, I think when I speak about these these topics in this um, point of view, people agree. They don't fully get it. When I host spaces of collective sense-making and truly kind of win-win environments where I or, or others act as the stewards of that space to create space which is actually safe as in people are held accountable if language is used that is kind of um combative or if there's kind of one-upping or kind of win-lose dynamics you know that is kind of facilitated um or like gently shifted um there's i think there's a lot of ninja facilitation that is needed in that Mm. because actually you know calling it out in a combative way is that just adds to that whole dynamic so that's yeah I think when people experience that even if they don't um, necessarily resonate with like the language being used or they haven't kind of got it what they say is like I really like these spaces I want to come back that's it it's just like I really like this so we're changing the dark matter in a way that is an actual shifting of the uh, to use our old metaphor of the of the two magnets, you're Mm -hmm. shifting the shape of the magnetic field without necessarily doing it in a head-based way. Yes, exactly. You're shifting heart minds. Yeah, and this kind of brings us back to the thing we spoke about briefly before we started, which is about feeling the future, feeling what a new future, a new way of being, a new way of um, acting together, being together, living could be like I think as humans we we you know I mean <laughs> I'm about to say something very obvious we exist in bodies which you know is should be obvious but actually feels quite radical it's like um, I think it's George Lakoff talks a lot about kind of embodied cognition um, and I I think yeah. that is just so important and and kind of not um, integrated enough into how we try and make change and change narratives and, you know, all of this stuff, this change-making activity. Uh, and my, my friend and mentor, Mark Wynn, talks a lot about this and actually really embodies it in that, you know, before meetings, he works, he's, he's based in Guernsey and works with the local government there. And for him, it's just so important that at the beginning of an important meeting, everybody is in what he calls a high state, which doesn't mean 
you know, you go and drink a bunch of beers yeah. and like get really <laughs> merry, which, you know, is one, one thing. Cause actually, you know, when you work with organizations, often you realize that most of the decisions happen in the pub because everybody's in a high state. Yeah. So it's really, it's quite, right. it's quite logical and rational really. Um, but yeah, creating these spaces where we can, um, feel, be, be actually embodying our better selves and um, be in a state of ease and enjoyment and and kind of kindness. You know, we're, we're far more likely to be kind when we're feeling relaxed and safe and seen. Um, so, yeah, working at that level. But for people listening, if they were wanting to begin to facilitate meetings, you know, even local parish council level or, you know, our local marches grow local, if we wanted to enable people to be in the best possible state to begin making decisions. Is there some kind of a framework? <laughs> well, I guess this is what the Moral Imaginations Project is about, is developing those recipes and practices um, to do this kind of serious play or to um, create spaces where complexity is allowed. I think, you know, there are also other many other toolkits. Um, you know, I know there's Theory U. I don't personally I'm not personally kind of trained or very deep in that work but um I think you know one thing that is sometimes missing from these toolbox toolkits is like they can be these methodologies which focus a lot on like do this then do this then do this and like liberating yeah, structures yeah, yeah liberating structures is another one which I think is actually really good and a good place to start because even just by using different facilitation patterns even if you don't do anything else, even if you're just deadly serious and, and you don't embody any kind of shift in feeling, um, you know, just the act of kind of moving from a whole group into a group of three, into like a feedback, into a fishbowl, and you can look up, there's a web, we'll put the website in the description of Liberating Structures. Even just through doing that, um, I think it ignites a kind of playfulness and flexibility and openness. And it takes us back to our childhood where we used to kind of do this all the mm. time, like play in these different ways. Um, but I think the more that we can also, yeah, work on embodying the change and the the kind of future we want to see and, and to kind of embody that playfulness, that kindness, that easefulness, so that other people can also have the permission, permission to do that um, is also a big part of it. Yeah, because what I'm hearing from you is that while it matters that we find the language to help ourselves change this field of perception in which we swim, it may be that the embodiment happens first mm. and the language follows, rather than us having to be able to find words for something that at the moment we are only fleetingly experiencing. Does that sound like something that fits? Yeah, I think I, think I would just say that we've tried... We've tried language a lot. I mean, look at the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. The UN created these, uh, I think it's 17, if not 18, Sustainable Development Goals of like, you know, changing, we need to eradicate poverty, we need like good food systems, we need, you know, all of this kind of list of language mm. um, and kind of goals. And nothing, I mean, nothing necessarily changes just because you say you need to do that. Yeah. Okay. So we are definitely running towards the end of our time. So for people listening, moving towards warm data rather than cold data, moving towards embodying 
the change that we need to see, which we've been, we've heard that since Gandhi first <laughs> said it. Is there anything else that you would like to leave people with as something that gives them a sense of agency that they can take out into the world now and begin to work with, or places they can find online resources where they can begin to explore more deeply? Yeah, I think I would leave people with um, the permission to morally imagine different futures and to, uh, if it's interesting to them to visit uh, moralimaginations.com or get in touch and, and join our sessions and join this growing community of serious play. Um, I think, yeah, if systems thinking is, is something interesting um, for you, I think it's, I mean, I, in my opinion, it's, uh, it's at the core of us returning to perceiving the world as it is. And I hope that the future looks like, uh, you know, I hope the future of Cambridge is that it becomes a systems thinking, <laughs> systems thinking university and every university and every you know, education program, um, helps children and young people develop an understanding about the world that is based in complexity and systems um and i think on the on the topic of kind of radical collaboration looking up liberating structures looking up there's a body of work called going horizontal which is written by samantha slade um, and is something i use in uh, some of the courses i've taught on organizing like mycelium um, and these are very practical uh, tools and approaches to learn how to collaborate um, and how to share power and how to distribute governance. So that can be within an organization or in a family or in a relationship. Um, so that's also mm. something to, to look up. So those are, we've mentioned so many things, but those are some of the things I'd, I'd leave you with, moral imagination, radical collaboration, and embodying the future you want to see. Brilliant. Okay. Thank you very much indeed. I will put links to all of these in the show notes. So thank you, Phoebe, for taking the time and giving us such a breadth and depth of things to play with. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So that's it for another week. Huge thanks to Phoebe for the range and breadth and depth of her thinking and for being such an inspiring role model. I will put links in the show notes to Moral Imaginations and Going Horizontal and all of the other places that she mentioned. We will be back next week with another conversation looking at how we can be the change that the world needs. In the meantime, thanks as always to Caro C for the sound production and for the music at the head and foot of the podcast. Thanks to Faith Tillery for being the other half of the creative team that is Accidental Gods and for designing the website. If you want to head there to see what she's created, the address is accidentalgods.life. You'll find the show notes there, the transcript to this and all of the other podcasts, the visualizations and meditations in the pandemic resources section, and the Accidental Gods membership portal, which is a structured training designed to give all of us the opportunity to connect with the web of life, with the integrity authenticity and grounding that will let us be the change that the world needs. So if you know of anyone else who would like to be active in bringing about the more beautiful world that our hearts know is possible, 
then do send them this link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you and goodbye.